are robots. We are controlled by humans. We get our eyes from our other computers. We are nothing but stupid machines. Hello and welcome to None of Us Is Yet A Robot, the podcast. This is episode 8 and it's another special edition because this episode was commissioned by Mayfest Radio who invited me to record an episode of the podcast in response to some of the shows that are being presented down there. Mayfest is a theatre festival that happens in Bristol in the UK every May. Um... This explains why there's new music. Regular listeners will have become used to the tones of craft work at the beginning of these podcasts, Uh, but I wasn't allowed to steal music in the same way as I do um, previously. So this is uh, some free music that I found, but I rather like it, so maybe we'll stick with it. Um, I'm talking with Selena Thompson. Um, Selena is uh, an extraordinary artist of great integrity and generosity whose work ranges from being warm and inviting and funny to holding space beautifully for some of the biggest issues of our time Uh, and it was extraordinary to talk to her. Um, My intention had been to go down to Bristol and to see her work and then to talk with somebody about it but there was a train strike and I wasn't able to get there so yeah, bizarrely, I've ended up not going to Mayfest and um, talking about it nonetheless. It does also account for the fact that this conversation happens over Skype, so I apologise for any um, sound quality issues there. I've done my best to minimise those. Um, Please do bear with it, but regular listeners will know that this is a a cute feature of these podcasts. Um, Lol. What do we talk about? Um, Wow, well... We talk about a lot. We talk about being an artist who makes... Being artists who present traumatic material at times. About not being consumed by that. Being consumed by an audience. Um, we talk about... Well, I think let's just let's just start and see, see where it goes. Um, but I really valued this conversation. And I think... There's so much more to be said, but um, I hope you enjoy it. If you're joining us from Mayfest Radio, there was a break in the conversation because we talked for longer than the slot we had. So if you're joining us, welcome. Um, I hope you enjoyed this extra ramble at the start, but uh, maybe you'll want to skip to like 50 50 minutes in, which is where we left you. For those of you regular listeners or listeners who are joining us via the podcast, just sit back listen to the whole thing and uh i hope you yeah i hope you enjoy anyway here we go episode eight mayfest special none of us is yet a robot Okay, hello and welcome to an, a special episode of None of Us Is Yet A Robot, the podcast, because today we are not only recording for um, online 
wonderful audience, this is going to be put onto Mayfest Radio. Um, and I'm speaking, I'm joined today virtually because um, I'm not in Bristol, I'm in London, um, but I'm joined virtually from Bristol by Selena Thompson, who is one of the artists performing at Mayfest. Hey, Selena. Hi, <laughs> How are you? That's really um, good. That's really good care for artists. Yeah, it was incredible. That's really um, good. And I feel like an actual human being again now, which I didn't yesterday. Cool. Um, so yeah. Amazing. Um, I'd like to come back to that diversity talk. I think it's really interesting that neither of us were able to get, to get there. <laughs> <clears throat> I think it says a lot about what um what's going on. But before we start, um. I, hey, new listeners from Mayfest Radio. The way that this podcast works is that um, generally I'm talking uh, about issues of gender because that's where my practice focuses. Um, today, I guess we're, I mean, well, gosh, it's all part of the same conversation, but we're, um, you know, we're going to probably be well, well open. But um, the first question that I ask everybody is about identity. Um, so how do you identify well just gender gender in rabbit ears inverted commas um i think whatever that says to you because i think for me to put anything onto it says about my what what is significant to me because i have an order of things that i would identify as but they're not necessarily the same as you and i'm also aware that day to day and place to place that order also shifts right yeah. Um, well, at the beginning of every show, in my sort of like, I'm laying out the basics of who I am. I say that I'm Selena Thompson, I'm 26 years old, I'm black and a woman. And that's my like mm-hmm. list of things. Um, what are the list of things? And everything else just can say a question mark. Uh huh. It's none of your business. <laughs> so that's kind of that's me. Yeah. Okay. And you're and um, when you're you say you're a woman, you are a cisgender woman, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, what do I want to say? So you're making you're performing your show Salt in the festival. Yeah. Are you able to say what? that's about for anyone who hasn't yeah. seen it yeah <laughs> like the, what, yeah somewhere that was kind of like if you have to have big unveiled in your show it can't be that good anyway and i was like number one ow and number <laughs> two all right i'll just tell everybody what's going to happen before it happens <laughs> um 
So in February, I um, got on a cargo ship in or a freighter, whatever you want to call it, in Antwerp in Belgium. And I sailed from there to Ghana, then flew from Ghana to Jamaica, then sailed back uh, to the UK. So I was retracing this random Atlantic slave triangle. I got back about five weeks ago, <laughs> and then we made a show about it. Wow. Um, and it's the show kind of presents that journey, um, gives a sort of overview of as much as I can of why I felt the need to make it. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things where I'm trying to articulate to an audience something I don't actually know. Yeah. Um, but it's all a bit Kate Bushy and sort of like starts at the bottom of the sea and with a great big white dress and mm. 25 kilos of salt and worlds that are built and destroyed. It's, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Is it anywhere near what you thought it might be when you set off? Or when you conceived it? Yeah. Do you ever do you ever get this thing, the stuff you make, mm. where it's both exactly what you thought it was going to be <laughs> and completely different from what you thought it was going to be at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, okay. So, like, when I read it and when I look at it, I go, oh, yeah, of course it's that. Because yeah. it's all that for ages. But every now and again, there's something where I'm like, well, this is, this is unexpected. Hmm. Um, and it's also this thing where, like, I can remember speaking with somebody when I was in Jamaica, and they were like, so do you know how it's going to end yet? And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> I'll, I'll get back to the UK. Like, I've always said how it's going to end, because I'm doing a closed circuit. Yeah. Um, so it's this thing where, like, in terms of like linearity, things like beginning, middle, end, mm-hmm. it's very, very simple. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it's all of the weird development of as a person mm-hmm. stuff that I couldn't really anticipate. So, mm. and I'm dying was really pivotal in the work, and I could never have predicted that. Mm-hmm. Um, I am adopted. And retracing that route, all that loads of stuff for me about my adoption, which really shaped the work. I've never anticipated that. Mm-hmm. Um, the filmmaker who I bought with me had a really tough time, mm-hmm. and we had to send that person home. Okay. So that completely dictated the ship, the ship, the trip. Um, the sailors on the first trip were super racist. We wow. did not quite anticipate that. So that also wow. changed things. Um, we were told we weren't allowed to film on that first ship as well, okay. which meant that literally one of the materials of the show disappeared. Yeah. So, it, yeah, it changed loads. It, on one level, it's like transformed before all recognition. The grammar in that sentence was a mess, but you know <laughs> what I mean. But on the other hand, yeah, I look at it and I'm like, well, there's a big monologue at the beginning. There was always going to be that. Mm-hmm. I'm in a big white dress. There was always going to be that. Mm-hmm. There's a foot ton of salt. There was always going to be that. Yeah. Um, and I'm at the bottom of the sea. 
and there was mm. always going to be that. Yeah. And those huge things have stayed mm-hmm. strong. Um, and it's on a, for me anyway, for me it's on a big stage because it's in the main performance space in the Arnold Theme, okay. which is really important to me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's interesting that, isn't it? I've just finished... Um, <clears throat> performing rituals for change again last week at the yard and then um down at the caravan showcase in brighton and myth who I, who designed the show who i've been one of the people that i worked with making it it seems really reductive to say designed the show because i feel like actually all of those roles got really blurred beautifully but um we finally added in um, this video element to it just last week. That's new. Which we'd never had before um, because we, we sort of played with it and then we took it out because it felt like actually it was just getting in... The, at, that, at that early stage last year, it was just getting in the way and it was a bit... It had a... You know, video has a texture of fakeness that's sometimes yeah. a bit hard to deal with, especially when you're dealing with such natural elements throughout as we are. But there was a point when that went up and Myth just came over and went, now it's it's all the drawings that you ever did. And it was. And I can go back to my my notebook and all of the elements are there from my very, very first weekend of writing on it. <laughs> Projection, the tower, the circles, the stuff. I had no idea how to get there. And actually, we didn't get there because it was in the notebook. It's only retrospectively looking back. But it's funny because that particular show, more so, so the previous show that I made, Language, took like three years to make and I'm performing it next week and I've got to rewrite it entirely because it needs rewriting again because that stuff just keeps changing and it's too complicated. And in a way, Rituals for Change we made in like three weeks came together, boom. Like so, And obviously, I don't know how that happened or what makes one, one project do that and another project not, but it did just feel like... It didn't need much more to it. So, yeah, it's funny that. Um, So, I mean, I... So I saw Rituals, Caravan, Sunday Just Gone, if you're personally listening on the radio, ever Mm. radio, Um, and I think one of the many things that I loved about it is just... Everything about it is, like, perfectly in sync. So the materials, like... The form and the content mm. match so perfectly. There's absolutely no tension between it. And I remember when the video came on, it was a surprise to me mm-hmm. because I didn't know there was video in it in the documentation I've seen. Yeah. I've not seen that. But it was perfect because it revealed what you were doing and what you yeah. were constructing and what you were putting together in such a, like, perfect way and I can it makes sense that that's a piece that would almost come out of your head fully formed mm. do you know what I mean watching it, it kind of well, it's not that complicated you know the, the actions themselves it's like okay get an axe and some wood okay what we're going to do with it well we're going to chop the wood like you know <laughs> there wasn't too many questions I, I did get left in the room a bit by Ailey with like okay you want salt? I'll come back in two hours, see what you come up with with the salt. Because the it was also always going to be artificial. Those rituals were going to be constructed and made up and artificial. Um, and the only thing that we knew was that we didn't want to, I didn't want to appropriate from 
other like to go into ritual I didn't want to strain to kind of um yeah appropriation so we were like okay these are all these are all materials that are universal they definitely have a history within my family and genealogy and going back so let's just play and let's make up new stuff rather than look at what rituals look like and try and emulate them and obviously there's always going to be some kind of fluidity between that because there's only so many things you can do with a thing to yourself but um yeah we just we just kind of made them up so um coming back to the show that is actually in Mayfest as opposed to the one that isn't um hey Mayfest radio are you have you still got shows on have you got one more to do one more tonight. Okay, so, all right, cool. So there's no chance to see either of the either of these shows at Mayfest, but that's cool. We can talk about them. But um, I think it's nice to have them both in the conversation because the similarity... But I've been thinking about how to how I would describe your work. So I haven't seen Salt, but I've seen um, Dark and Lovely, and I've seen um, Chewing the Fat. Yeah. Um and there's a similarity between what I'm doing with None of Us Is Yet, a robot project, that at the basic level, we are talking autobiographically about an aspect, a, a thing that, is, that shapes our lives or is a feature of our lives. But also, I feel like that's super reductive to talk about your work in that way, because when I watch Dark and Lovely and when I watch Chewing the Fat, there's, uh, it's obviously much more than just your experience, and your, and I think this, I mean, this is a thing about maybe about good autobiographical work that you go to the super personal, and that allows me as the audience to to think about myself and to consider my relationship to those things, and it's almost counterintuitive that the more you know because you go there. I'm allowed, I'm, I have the space to think about, you know, my world or the people that I know. So it feels like a, a really, like an opening out rather than a closing down. It's not like Louis yeah. Theroux documentary, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really aware in, so I mentor two younger artists who both do autobiographical work. Mm. And I think when you're starting out with autobiographical work, the sort of word that like, wakes you up at like three o'clock in the morning and sort of haunts you it's like self-indulgent yeah and oh, um, it's sort of idea of therapy on stage hmm. but i was really lucky that when i was mentored my advice was to like delve as deeply into my subjectivity as possible hmm. um i did brian kimmings workshop mm-hmm. last year and it's like a five-day thing and the first day we're just talking about yourself mm-hmm. she's getting you to absolutely try as, as much as you can feasibly ever know yourself just trying to get you to really be like what are the limits of my personality what are the limits of my um experience mm-hmm. because whatever i am is going to be in the world um and i guess with dark and lovely and chewing the fat they both come from so i made chewing the fat because in my last year of uni there was one girl who left at the end of second year, like a size 16, came back at the beginning of third year, size 6, and it sort of sent these, like, ripples through Mm. my year, because it's that thing of, like, somebody is, like, stood in front of you Mm -hmm. with sort of eating disorder in plain sight. Like, 
you know what it's like at uni, you all live in this tiny bubble. People would see her going running and throwing up and then continuing to run. So this thing is happening, it's like right there, mm. but it's like the sun, no one looks directly at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but everybody kind of just exploded mm-hmm. for a year, like it just it was like she'd ripped the lid off all of these body things, food things that mm. permeate the life of sort of young people. Yeah. Like, I'm not even going to try and make it gender because I don't think that's true. Mm. And I really desperately wanted to try and how can we look at the sun? How can we have mm. this conversation? And the only way that it felt, the only way I felt like I could do it was to tell my story and mm-hmm. to be as honest as I could. Yeah. And then it's this thing where, like, someone stood in front of you and they've made themselves really, really vulnerable and really, really abject. Mm-hmm. And they're still standing, yeah? No one's dead. They haven't died. Yeah. So we can all do that. We can all have this, like, abject conversation, whether we have it with each other or we have it with ourselves. My idea is that if I take the plunge and do it first, mm-hmm. And hopefully, touch wood, it becomes easier for you to do it. Yeah. Whereas with Dark and Lovely, I think, I'm with Dark and Lovely, I didn't start from wanting to do that, but it got to the stage where I had to. Mm-hmm. Because I'm having all of these conversations with people, and there comes a point where we're like, we're running out of language because it's too painful to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're speaking to young women who are activists in their community, mm. yeah? They're like people who are used to being the only black face in a white space. Mm. They work hard. They know all about white beauty standards. Mm. They know it all. They know all the theory. But still, there's this part of you that like goes home at night and kind of wishes you looked a bit different. Yeah. Kind of wishes it wasn't that. And it's this thing... That I think is like such a tragedy. I think of anybody with any marginalised identity is you can know all the theory, you can know all the stuff, but it was still being planted in your head yeah. from before you could read or write or figure out the world around you. And undoing that is like lifelong work, which you might not ever be able to do for you mm. or for your kids or for your grandkids. There's a thing that I am. Um, I think I feel I quote it in every single fucking podcast episode mm. and oh, I wonder if we can swear on the radio yeah um, I did okay I did. um yeah. in every single podcast episode and it's this con and I, and I never remember who said it so maybe I need to research it and so I know but it's this concept of the cop in the head and that there's this self-policing voice which is as you say yeah. it's the one that we've all learned and all internalized um there's I mean that thing of, be, of of you standing and saying your story so that other people it becomes easier for other people and that we can look at the sun. I mean, I feel so much with your work that, you know, that is, you're giving us permission to look at the sun. You're providing the safety glasses with the tint and by saying it's okay, you know, the colander with a hole in it, by saying it's okay to... Um, to look at this and to listen to this story, you're you're giving us a way in to um, see that. But we were so we were talking a minute ago before we started about the self care 
within that though that you know so you place yourself and also I'm aware that I forgot to mention race cards which was another piece of yours that I've seen which I absolutely um found extraordinary when I saw it at at Buzzcut but I mean another piece that you're 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 absolutely placing yourself between us and the sun and allowing us to look or facilitating us to be able to look at the this these topics that are so so big it's really hard to find a way in and yet it's really important to find the way in because just to say something so big so we can't find the way in is an excuse and a way of not actually um not engaging with it oh well it's too big we just can't do that isn't is not acceptable but um but yeah I mean this where's the self-care in that so it's great that you've been able to spend the day at the spa but um but it's kind of like how do we how do we get to the point where where that's not necessary how do you build that into the work or yeah because that was that that I think is what I'm so I might touch on race cards just quickly mm-hmm. and then come back to like salt and the conversation that we were talking about just three podcasts so um race cards initially was a piece of work where I was sat in a room for 12 hours at a desk uh, writing as many questions about race as I could uh, and then it grew to 24 hours to write a thousand questions mm-hmm. um, and it's been done at festivals so at Buzzcut and Forest Fringe which I think which I think for artists in our bit of the sector are both really safe spaces yeah. like they're spaces where you are I think very free to fail mm-hmm. um and spaces where your friends are there. Yeah. Your friends are there. And it actually, it's not about programmers. Mm. It's about artists. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I did it at Forest Fringe, um, I was really ill. I had just gone back onto antidepressants. Mm. And there's that bit, like, if you, don't, if you know, you know, but if you don't know, there's a bit when you first go on antidepressants where they just, like, smash your head apart like everything just like and it's like this horrible thing that you have to get through for them to work but for a while it's like oh it was awful it was awful um and i was there as an emerging artist with the british council and doing this really intense performance and people loved it but i said to emma i'm never doing this again <laughs> i'm never doing this again um but it's already been commissioned for fierce so I said, can we find a way of doing it without my body? Mm-hmm. So can it work as an installation? Can we come up with a really robust set of instructions mm. so that people can participate? I don't know if that's the right word for race cards, but people can experience it and I don't have to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's taken us like nine months to figure out how to do that well. Mm-hmm. But now it's up as an installation in London, and I'm not there. And so it means that that work is there, and I'm very present in it. It's yeah. like a thousand questions that have come out of my head. But I'm not there. Mm-hmm. I don't carry the residue of that work. Mm. It's doing what it needs to do. We've managed, I think, someone emailed me about it yesterday, and they described race cards as a safe space. Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely overjoyed by that description of the work. Um, 
but I'm safe within that work. It yeah. can go where it needs to go. It can yeah, do yeah. what it needs to do. And I'm all right. And I guess that what I'm trying, I guess that what I'm doing, and it's not the only way, but I'm trying to figure out how I take my body out of the performances I do. Mm-hmm. Because I just don't think I can... The way that we make work is so subject to other things. Mm-hmm. So... For example, in an ideal world, after I had got off the ship, I would have had six months to make the show. Mm. But we were subject to like cargo shipping yeah. routines, and then we and then Mayfest May is in May. That's that, <laughs> that. You know what I'm thinking? Like, and I don't doubt for a minute that if Matthew and Kate could have moved the festival for me, they would have done. <laughs> but that's just not how it works. Yeah. So it means that there are lots of things that actually make it very, very difficult for you to build safety around the work mm-hmm. because there's only so much control that you have. Mm. And I'm aware that things like a spa day, for example, is wonderful, just what I needed. But that isn't... That's cure rather than prevention. Yeah, exactly. And actually, prevention is what I'm interested in. Yeah. How are we making sure that I'm not getting to a period where a venue kind of is like, we're going to have to really spoil you and pamper you because mm. we're worried about you. Yeah. Um, and I'm lucky and blessed to be working with a festival that cares mm-hmm. enough to do that. Yeah. But, you know, what if we've, we've all worked with hostile venues, well, ca- especially when you're putting up radical work. Totally. Well, I mean, that, that cares and that has the resources to do so as yeah. well because, I mean, a, a lot of spaces that care greatly but again I mean we're, we're the sector we're in and the bit of the sector that we're in it's not like we're dealing with the opera house or wherever so I mean it's it, it's that as well and I mean you're gonna f- there's hostility I mean there's hostile venues but then there's also the there's the audience that you're going out and you're placing your body we place our bodies in front of let's hope a room full of people we don't know all of because you know and I think stepping back to when you were talking about forest and and buzz cut I think there's a there's a really interesting thing that perhaps doesn't always get talked about as a positive about some we're always reaching audiences how do we reach an audience how do we get out there how do we expand demographics how do we do things and I think actually spaces that are predominantly artists and people who are into reading art and theatre and stuff, I think they're really important. I don't think they're negative at all. I think it, it's just about how they exist and then also there are spaces that exist that get to other audiences. I don't think it has to be that every performance ever needs to reach um, an, an underserved audience in order to justify it. But, um, but yeah, when we are in these positions... And then actually there's the thing of... So I'm just... Um, Abby and I with None of Us Is Yet a Robot... We just got a bit of funding um, from Welcome Trust, yeah, uh, specifically to to trial taking Rituals for Change and getting it in front of a predominantly trans or non-gender conforming audience. And also, like, how do we support that? How do we care for that audience? How do we care for, you know, actually a lot of talk about how do we care for the audience, not so much about how do we care for ourselves. So let's maybe yeah. think about that. Yeah. But then in between that space which we're going to create which hopefully will be awesome 
and the space that's for artists where we know we're supported and loved because we know people and we are established enough in our own practice that we feel maybe confident enough to to be okay in that space then there's the middle space which is where you are now like okay it's the Arnold Feeney a bunch of people are gonna come or it's wherever it's some you know it's somewhere in another in another town and there's little control and probably the people who are going to come and see that are not necessarily people from the demographic that you're hoping to reach or coming from and then yeah. there's I think that's when I feel I, I was surprised last week how vulnerable I felt during the run at the yard yeah. that the audience was predominantly if not exclusively cisgendered um and that pretty much the people who I read as transgender or knew knew to be trans were people who I'd invited. Um, and there came a point in that week where suddenly it didn't feel as safe as as I'd hoped, and it felt or it didn't feel as clear as I'd hoped. And it's not that that work is only for a trans audience; it's absolutely not. But yeah, there, it almost flipped during, there was one night that I didn't enjoy at all and it was during that night that it kind of really flipped for me and I suddenly felt, here I here I was talking about the experience of being looked at in the street from the safety of a space that I have created for myself and I suddenly felt it there. I was like, this is not, this is not the um, idea. <laughs> so, leading on from that, but sort of bouncing off it, mm. bouncing off it. It makes me think of the chat that I had with Sue. Um, this is Sue so McLean. This is Sue McLean, whose show is at Mayfair. Go and see it. Um, <laughs> can I start again, please? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, so I didn't go and see it when it was a caravan because it's about trauma. And I was like, Sue, I can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I finish so, I'm all over it. But I just... I can't do it and she and I had a really lovely chat and she was talking about how do you build your self-care into the work Mm -hmm. and she was like is it something as simple as putting something in right at the beginning that reminds you as the artist that you are just in a room with a group of people but it's not because there's something about So dark and lovely feels safe for me a lot of the time because there's no fourth wall. Mm-hmm. And the lack of fourth wall gives me a great deal of control, actually. Mm-hmm. So has a sort of semi-permeable fourth wall. Okay. And I would say that rituals for change has a semi-permeable yeah. fourth wall. So I think when I saw it, something went wrong with a light or a record mm-hmm. and you were able to be like, oh, we all saw that, didn't yeah, we? Yeah. And it was like, look, with laughter and then you carried on. So everybody sat in the audience and they all know that you are you and that mm-hmm. you're talking about your experience and you are not pretending that we're not there. It's mm-hmm. not the kind of performance where if someone's coughing, they're yeah. going to want to hide away. Yeah. But what that kind of means is that you as an artist carry all the vulnerability that you would get with being face-to-face and talking to someone Mm -hmm. without having any of the protection that a fourth wall gives you of a split between yourself and audience. Yeah. So how 
How can you flip that dynamic? Yeah. How can you flip it so that there is some protection for you in there? Do you need to do something? I need to it's plug fine. the I need to plug the laptop in. Otherwise, yeah. you're gonna die any second. <laughs> well, you're not gonna die, but I won't be able to see you. Hang <laughs> on, I've got one just here. Ah, sorry, I was desperately trying not to break the flow of that. No, but, that's I, fine. I, I couldn't see where um where the charger was. Ah, um. I think it's really important. I felt actually there's um, something that happens when the audience come in to Rituals for Change that I always try. So I feel like, um, is that going to come on? Yeah, there we go. Boom. Um, there's a real convention in this kind of theatre to begin with. Hello, I'm Emma. This is me. Um, and it's like, and it gets kind of um, taken like it gets made fun of a little bit, but it's the most efficient way of explaining the rules of of that space actually, because within one with one sentence you've you've explained it, you've said I can see you, this is real, um, and actually with rituals for change because I don't do that, but I try and like at the beginning, if so like if people are there that I know or there's a chance with the audience to kind of say hello as they come in just to be like oh it's it's okay and we and you came in and I was genuinely really happy to see you in the audience and then yeah. I came and so I came over and then we had a hug and stuff and I was like oh this is great because yeah. that it feels so important to me to break that fourth wall yeah even before the show's begun yeah. to just because it can get quite it can feel quite heavy otherwise rituals yeah. and then it and then it doesn't help because heaviness doesn't help um, I don't want people to feel sorry for me or to feel that I'm vulnerable in a situation. So yeah, that that happening was really nice. And also when that happens, it says to me, I'm like, I've got a friend in. Yeah. I'm going to be okay because yeah. I know that there's someone in this audience who I can trust and who loves me. And so if things are difficult, there's this person there. Yeah. So there is a genuine yeah. um, relief in that. But yeah, you were talking about the, the the flipping of it. So this with the yeah, because how do you how do you it's it's very much about you. I think we just we spend so much time when we are presenting trauma or traumatic material, mm. thinking about how we make it safe for an audience. Mm. And I think we're always the after yeah and for me it feels very important that i need to change that because can your audience ever truly be safe in the work if you're not safe in it yeah and safety isn't always what we want for the work right mm -hmm. like bits of salt are profoundly unsafe mm -hmm. and they have to be because they are i can't make things which aren't safe in life yeah. safe in fear but 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 you should be safe within that. Yeah, I should. And it, it's something, I feel like it's something to do with... Mm. I don't know. Maybe I don't know yet. Maybe I still need to let the, the cogs turn a bit. But... I think it's something about, is it something about not trying to hide the labour of mm -hmm. what you're doing? Is it something about, 
So for me, one of the most like powerful moments for me of doing soul is standing in front of people and being like, so I went, I'm not really sure why I went. I didn't find what I was looking for. And when I came home, everything had changed. I made this show in five weeks and it was only the second time I'd used my passport and like the first time I've travelled as an adult. Mm -hmm. There's something for me which is kind of like being able to stand there and be like, I don't need you to feel sorry for me, Mm -hmm. but I do need you to know that like, I'm not standing here with anything to prove to you Mm -hmm. because I've I've done that graph. I don't need to put myself through something for you. Yeah. Right, right now, in the next hour and a half, because yeah. this is this is like my life, mm-hmm. and it's something about creating a creating a balance, and then not being it's, especially if you're going forward in front of an audience with a body that is other or othered. I'm doing a quotation marks, maybe mm-hmm. or a story that is seen as a story of the other. Mm-hmm. That not becoming something which is consumed by an audience in yeah. a really toxic way. Yeah. Um, it's all a bit of a mess in my head at the minute. It's coming... Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's very articulate, um, <laughs> what you're saying. And I think that thing of this performance, this live performance, this bit at the end, which too often because of the parlance of, again, the industry and the way that we make work, and you were talking before about the um, the things that the work is subject to, i.e. festival deadlines and mm-hmm. funders' requirements and things like this, remembering that, you know, that it, it doesn't have to be that the performance is the pinnacle of a experience as you say this is I'm getting way more comfortable with describing what I do as art and my life and life as practice and then the you know performances are part of that but it's not the it's not a capitalist model of production whereby this is the product and you can buy the product and you know everything else went into making that product and adds to its value or, or whatever. Um, cause I think you've got to be, yeah, like I don't want to come and see you go through something. When I was at drama school studying classical acting, um, the very brilliant guy who, who ran that course, um, Rob Clare, like he was, it was absolutely the entire course could be boiled down to don't act, don't act just like what he used to say for fuck's sake. Don't, just act, stand there, um, because there's nothing more, there's nothing less interesting than watching someone try to like squeeze out an emotion. Um, and actually there's something about being in that performance where you, you know, I need you to be facilitating and holding the space to communicate something. And I think the best way of communicating it is not necessarily to see you experience it, especially if it's trauma for you and for us or for as you say maybe not the us that's watching because it's theatre in the UK but that is a trauma for the the other a group of other um people 
I mean, with with none of us is yet a robot work. Really early on, when I was working with Rachel Mars, kind of supported the work, supported me, was a sort of dramaturg friend, got like helper through these two years where I was exploring what it meant to be coming out as trans through in a rehearsal process. Hardly any of that work made it in front of an audience because it was not for an audience. It was for me. And at the time that I came to first start sharing it, it was like almost backdated. So everything that I've stood on the stage and said that, you know, it's difficult to still stand on a stage and say some things, but they're generally, they're things that I've made peace with maybe not many months before or many weeks before, but I've made peace with them before I'm standing there and giving them to you. And maybe the next show will be about the thing that today I'm having a problem with. But, you know, it felt important to... to it's so, like... God, it sounds like a terrible job. Like, backdate the pain, you know? Backdate where the trauma is. Before, before going out there. No, but, I think you're completely right. Completely right. And I think... Something I realised last year, not last year, last week, is that this is like the first time actually that I've made a new work in two years. Right. So I made Dark and Lovely in like February 2014, okay. then had a year where I did nothing with it, mm-hmm. then got it back ready to tour. So by the time that it actually went on tour and the majority of people saw it, the issues in that are dealt with mm-hmm. from my point of view yeah. and it was the same with you in the fact like I made it at uni played about with it a little bit more just after I graduated so this is 2012 mm-hmm. it then goes on tour in 2014 mm-hmm. so there's always a a gap um, the first iteration of the work is always very raw mm-hmm. quite abject and messy and then I ignore it for like a year and then come back to it mm-hmm. distance um, and it, I, don't, I don't feel like things massively change mm-hmm. after the distance, not to me anyway, yeah. but my producer Emma, who's on the outside looking in, she can see how much it changes. Because yeah. you just have the, you're less precious with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Then, yeah, you can see the politics in mm. it more. There's definitely a point coming back to rituals this time um, <clears throat> after six months yeah. and being able to like sit down with, so with Ailey McCaskill, who I also work with on the show, who's like a Brit was, was a brilliant um, director, dramaturg, outside eye person, but um, to sit and to be able to say, okay, this is the piece. Now, how do I perform it? How do I become the performer of this piece? Yeah. That actually maybe, you know, it's, how important is it that it's me within this? Yeah. I could stand to see someone else in that piece. Right. It's probably unlikely to happen, but you know, like, it, how how do I shift my role from being the person who's experienced these things that I'm talking about to being the person who's going to embody them and and communicate them today? And yeah. that's been for that. I mean, it's funny because then I had that feeling last week of in in performance, but that was more about who was in the room. But as a performer, I feel like then super comfortable <laughs> with it. Um. There was a thing that I wanted to to mention because I was listening to another podcast. Um, Brilliant podcast. Uh, There's a trans woman called Merit Kopas um, in the States 
who does a podcast called Woodland um, Creatures. Woodland Creatures? No. What's it called? I'm going to look at it now. It's called... Ah. Woodland Secrets. Um, and there was an episode where she speaks to um, the writer Imogen Binney, um, so the trans woman. And they, I- Imogen talks about... They're, so they're both awesome women, right? So it's a, a total joy to listen to. I will link to this episode in the notes because it's really good. But um, they quote someone who I'd never heard of called Jean Baker Miller from a book called Towards a New Psychology of Women. Um, but the thing, the quote was about work that is made, art that is made by marginalised groups, by people from marginalised groups, goes through three stages. And the first stage is we're just like you. And then the second stage is we're nothing like you. And then the third stage is well, you don't matter, this is for us. <laughs> um, and I really love it. And I am keep trying to think about like the work that I've made and where it sits in that kind of stage. And I'm sure, like anything, it's probably, if there's any truth in it, it's not like a one, two, three, and then I'm there. It's something more cyclical, and I'm going to pass through each of those stages at times. But there's something about getting to that third stage and making the work that you need to make that then allows you know other people to... to to see and it's more interesting but um yeah just thinking about that kind of being being from a oh, Emma, Emma, I'm running out of battery sorry oh, it's my time awesome to run and get a charger no 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 worries hey you're back hi um I sort of tried to do like a little mini I then in the middle and then <laughs> you disappeared and then I realized it it all stopped recording anyway so it's fine oh. I'll, do, I'll do that at the at the end um we probably should begin to wrap up in a second but um but yeah to finish that that thought where where were we you the cycle the cycle yeah and and the, the the notion of and i mean this is where terminology becomes like just not good enough language becomes not good enough when i think about talking about myself as a trans person and Mm. I presume that it's equally um reductive at times when you're um thinking about things from a race perspective but you know to be predominant to broadly to be broadly speaking to be a artist of a certain background standing on a stage talking to an audience of people who are predominantly not from that background um I found that really kind of yeah an interesting um, series of things. Yeah, and I think it. Yeah, I I also am very much enamoured of that cycle. Hmm. Um, because what I like about it, though, I guess, is that I think that you're always. I think it's. A circle, and your and your work is bouncing around yeah. between those different points. Because I think even at the beginning, when you're making something which is like, "Hey guys, we're all the same," <laughs> it's like the something that rises up from you unbidden that goes, "No, we're fucking not." Left me like a bit in the middle, and then when you go back to it, you're like, "That was kind of hard style, wasn't it? That doesn't fit with everything else." So I can remember like in the first dark and lovely, and like. I was really, like, heartbroken when I went back to that bit of text because the most sort of, um, 
radical bit in it, mm. I like drowned myself out with like hair dryers. So yeah. I was that terrified of saying it. I don't think I had realised at the time mm. that that was what I was doing. And I was like, what is this thing where, like, 22-year-old Selena knows that she really needs to say this stuff, but is so scared of saying it that she yeah. makes it impossible for an audience to hear it. And I was like, I now say stuff, like, much worse, hmm. inverted commas, than that on Twitter on, like, a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. But, like, back then, saying that stuff was, like terrifying and I think that <laughs> yeah I just think it's really beautiful and it comes back again to that thing of what it's like in life as well I think I think in life you're constantly going through that thing of bouncing up bouncing around on that circle and Something which I'm wrestling with at the moment, and I know I want to spend a lot of time thinking about when I'm on the platform, is the term the white gaze. Yeah. Because I think it's something which is thrown around an awful lot, and I think different people mean very different things when they say it. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very clear on what it is that I mean when I say it, because it worries me that something which is so often used as critique mm-hmm. has become so deeply subjective. Mm-hmm. Um. And something I kind of wanted to ask you about, but we might be out of time, I guess, is how you're feeling about this new chapter that none of us have yet, none of us is yet a robot. It's kind of going to embark on when you're specifically performing to trans audiences. And if there's like a different set of like anxieties potentially that accompany that, because I know that when I was doing Dark and Lovely in London, it was going out largely in front of audiences that were black women. There was a whole other set of anxiety mm. that went with that for me. It wasn't, especially in, in places in the text where I'm being more critical, Yeah, it didn't necessarily feel like it guarantees any kind of safety for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just wondered if you wanted to talk about that because I'm interested. Well, I'll tell you what... Um... Here's a here's what maybe we'll do. Um, we'll have that conversation, but yeah. for the listeners from Mayfest Radio, you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to download the podcast because we're up to our time slot. So you know, it's like a red button technology on the BBC. If you want more of this conversation, there will be <laughs> there will be more to have. Um, in which case, you can go to iTunes or to Podbean, and you can look for uh, "Not Yet a Robot." podcast and um hear the end of this so maybe for listeners who are listening on that anyway you sit tight don't go anywhere but just to wrap up for the mayfest radio people i guess it'd be really good to say what are you looking forward to in the festival or what else is still to come or what's like your highlight or something like that um so i'm not gonna get to see it but um i saw i think i I have i saw like Wrecking Ball, like early days of Action oh, yeah. Heroes Wrecking Ball in Mayfest last year. I'm like a bit of an Action Hero super fan anyway. Yeah. They're really great. Um, so I'm sad I won't see that. I'm finally going to go and see Sue, Sue McCain, uh, and I start again tomorrow, awesome. which I'm really excited about. And this piece called It Folds by a dance company. And I sort of read the copy and I was like, I don't understand this. I'm intrigued. What? Absolutely intrigued. What was the content? Um, so, yeah, I think it's a great program. 
Um, what was the copy? What was the thing that intrigued you about the piece? It was like a piñata sways in the breeze. <laughs> a straight-talking ghost. Just like a list of really strange images. Awesome. And I was like, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand what it is. And then there's like um, a little video beneath. It was not played. But the image that's like the screen that's frozen is like a pantomime horse and like a, an elder gentleman sat in a party hat at the front of the stage. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm sold. I'm awesome. there. Oh, that does sound great. <laughs> yeah. I guess I'm just looking at the program now because I didn't make it down. Like this whole like escapade of doing something for Mayfest Radio was designed to facilitate me actually coming down to Bristol and being in a you know in an actual room, um, which didn't happen. But there's some things that I saw at Forest last year. Vincent Gambini's "This Is Not a Magic Show" I really loved, mm -hmm. really loved that last year, um, and that's on or has been on. But yeah, really, I mean it's it's a very strong. It's a very strong program, huh? Yeah. Um, well, okay, but so goodbye, Mayfest Radio. Bye, Mayfest. <laughs> Bye. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of the programming, um, and hello, podcast listeners. Um, hi, guys. <laughs> hi. You're like the super cool ones who are here for the long haul, but um, probably still not all that much longer because I've got to go pick my boy up, um, and I've got to go and do a show. You got to go do a show. Yeah, okay, so the the white gays, the cis gays, um, mm. and what is it like, what will it be like doing the work? I am so still, uh, okay, I feel like this is, these, these are all really hard things to talk about still, mm -hmm. and it comes back to the cop in the head and all of these things. Um... I recognise the trans misogyny that is just inherent in my, in who I am and in the way I, the way that the world is. And so mm. is in me as much as it's in other people. Mm. And I don't, and I fucking love being in spaces with loads of trans people. It mm. hardly ever happens. There was a point last year where um, actually Imogen Binney, who I spoke about earlier, came on a book tour from Topside Press and we hosted them down in Brighton at the Marlborough Theatre, which is a really great, super open space where you were playing yeah. the other day, um, actually full of many people of all genders. Um, but on this particular evening, it was full of trans women yeah. and uh, a group of trans women from the States did readings, a group of trans women from Bristol did readings and... It was frightening and it was awesome, but it was so unusual. And to be in particularly, you know, I, even when I'm in a room full of gender non-conforming people, mm. it's often not a room of trans women. And yeah. we're so kind of, so we're so, we don't have that experience very often as, as yeah. a group and as a marginalized group. And because we don't, it does mean that most often I'm, I hang out with people who are not trans and I hang out with my cisgender friends. And I did realise, I think what I realised last week, only last week, was that I still, to a certain degree, think of myself as one of them. 
And oh. obviously this kind of like, you know, them and us and blah, 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 And it's, you know, what are the other things I identify as? Well, many things that intersect with what these people are, right? Because I think we are, obviously we're made up of many things. But this experience, this very defining experience of being mm-hmm. trans that didn't start eight years ago when I began or whenever it was that I began to really look at this in the face and question this it has always been there it is about a, a an experience of what it is to be a trans woman <laughs> grow it as a child even if you're not like someone who's transitioning from the age of five or ten it is still a different experience um to growing up not but um yeah just this real kind of realization in in the moment of uh, on on stage of being like yeah i'm not i'm not like you um and it then feels kind of weird to be saying some of the stuff that i was that i'm saying do i mean do i mean that so whenever there's someone trans in the audience, I feel really nervous that they are going to see me for a fraud, say I don't speak for them, say I've got it wrong, I'm going to say I'm going to have misrepresented the situation. And I have to say, 100% of the time, that doesn't happen. And people are, are great and warm. And I feel like it is really important to... I'm, I'm articulate and confident and trained in being a performer and have all the privilege of going through life as a being treated as a white man for 30 plus years that have given me a status and a confidence and all all of these things and I do feel a privilege and a responsibility in being able to speak as a trans woman with that voice because I think a lot of um a lot of people have not had the comparatively easy ride that I've had in Mm. coming out as trans so I was at trans pride last year as well which happens down in Brighton I think it was the third year I think this year is going to be the fourth year maybe it was the fourth year and this is the fifth year um and it was like a pride march around the block in Brighton and I was expecting um in my head it was the first time I'd gone to it and in my head it's like gay pride so you've got kind of, you know, yeah, Rio sort of like, it's loud and there's whistles and everyone's kind of happy and blah, 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 all, all of that. Um, and it was so quiet as a group of trans people as we marched around the block. It was yeah. so quiet. <laughs> and it was awesome. And it was like, and then it got loud when we hit yeah. the place where we were. But that march felt to me like, this is a group of people who are defined by generally saying to the world, please don't look at us and trying to not be noticed. And I think that for the trans community, it's really unnatural to say, look at me and to invite people to look. And we're at this strange point now, sorry, I'm talking for ages. We're at this strange time now where there's been this explosion of trans publicity um to the point where people recognize it more than they maybe would have done yeah. but it, it invites a gaze whether you are whether you are someone who's who is inviting that gaze or not i think yeah. i talk a bit about this in rituals for change 
that now everyone has a kind of like, oh, this is that trans thing that I've been seeing on Lorraine Kelly on the telly. That's what it looks yeah. like. And there's even, you know, there's there's even more of an implicit invitation to be looked at and mm-hmm. to be... Like when you talked about um, the, the, ha- uh, the, the boy with the beautiful afro who yeah. always has a hand behind his <laughs> hair... Um, and so that experience that um, that gets talked about of uh, for people who have um, Afro hair of, of of people touching it unsolicited, mm-hmm. I, I could really identify with that feeling of an invited gaze, whether you're inviting it or not. I can stand yeah. on the stage and there is an invitation and it's really clear. And I have said... I, I've I've made that invitation and I've said you can look at me and for this for this period of time we understand the rules. Actually, Simon Bowes mm-hmm. just wrote about about rituals for change and said something said very much more eloquently something along those lines about that invitation. Mm-hmm. But I feel that as a trans person, that invitation doesn't go away when I step off the stage. It's there yeah. wherever I am. I haven't answered your question. I've just talked in a monologue for ages. I mean, do you, Thank you. how does it feel? Because obviously, like there's a di- there's a big difference in in the experience of being trans and the experience of being a person of color. Um, yeah. Certainly like I, I didn't, people didn't know I was trans until I was in my mid thirties. So yeah. I had quite a long time of being able to step out of it. And whilst I can't step out of it now because I don't really have that kind of passing privilege, I still, I can I can comparatively become invisible if I want to, mm. and I don't choose to because that's quite upsetting. Mm. Um, but I think that is a big. I mean, that's a big difference, obviously. Yeah, I think. Um, God, there's such a lot there. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll go back to the thing which I can definitely feel a moment of similarity to, which is there being somebody else in the audience who comes from the same margin as you. Mm. And that simultaneous feeling of, oh, I'm so glad you're here. But also, oh, God, like, (laughs) now, now now that you're here, like, so when, when I did uh, Dark and Lovely at Caravan, the only other woman sort of from the African diaspora in the room was Rhea. Yeah. And I was really aware of, and it's different because Rhea's my friend and I love her and mm-hmm. we're in, you know, dialogue and have been for coming up to two years now. But I could feel myself kind of being like fluctuating between looking at her and her being the thing that grounded me Mm -hmm. and other times looking at her and being like oh god like what what if you what if you what if you hate this what if to you this is embarrassing shameful humiliating or i'm making a big deal out of something which i should have moved on on from by now because Mm. you've moved on from it and i think that And I, I'm always sort of, so Susan did Dramaturgy for Salt, 
And something she spoke about a lot is how is that what is really crushing is when you realise how much you've internalised mm. and when you are lashing out at those who are closest to you or you are afraid mm. of those who are closest to you. Yeah. And I feel that when you're a performer or you're on stage and you're telling that story, to me that's the real vulnerability. Like, mm. what, what if I say this and other black women hate it? Yeah. They really, really hate it. And actually what I think is liberatory and radical is actually t- toxic, internalised bullshit. Yeah. And I've not done enough work to realise that yet. Yeah. In terms of gays, it's completely different. It's completely different. But um, there was a evening just after a senior show and there was another black woman in the bar at caravan mm-hmm. and i remember seeing her and thinking oh another black woman that's exciting but not wanting to go over to her because mm. i came on too strong and then <laughs> the guy that was running caravan like introduced us to each other and it was really wonderful because we just sort of took clothes of joy mm. in each other we started talking and she was talking about how she'd just moved to cambridge and how she'd noticed that when she smiles at other black women there they don't smile back. Wow. And it was crushing her. It was really crushing her. And we were talking about... Um, do you know the comedian Little Miss Jocelyn? No. Oh, yeah. So, did, did she have a TV series? Yeah, yeah she yeah. did. She did. It's, it's quite hit and miss. But one of the characters that she had that I absolutely loved was this character who was like a very like posh black woman in a high-powered job. Mm-hmm. And when other black women would try to speak to her, she'd be like, no, 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 don't talk to me. Nobody knows I'm black yet. <laughs> um, and I've had lots of conversations lately, actually, with black women about being in that environment where you are one of two or one of three. Mm-hmm. And either you are in the position where you are doing this or another woman is doing it to you, where they're not acknowledging you. Because it's this idea of distancing yourself from yeah. your otherness, like so not that you can't become invisible, it's impossible, but perhaps you can behave like you don't see it. Yeah. Like it's not a sin for you, like you're not holding that politics. And I think I did that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, I'm not gonna touch trace in my work, I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to deal with it because if I don't deal with it, then I don't have to carry it. I don't have to do it, mm. and that's bollocks. Yeah. You're doing it whether you're doing it or not. Yeah. But it makes me think a lot of at the diversity talk that I missed, but I did watch the tweets of somebody said something like, you know, a real, you know, real um, diversity is a black writer being able to write a play like Flowers. And I went and researched it, and Flowers is like a show that is about like a middle-class family, 2.5 kids, like your standards mm-hmm. sort of play. And I was like, well, number one, there are plenty of black writers that are actually doing that. Yeah. And number two, the assumption there is that it's harder for a black writer to write that kind of work than it is for a black writer to make something which is about race politics. Mm-hmm. And that's not been my experience, actually. Yeah. I've found making work about race politics harder than making something like Chewing the Fat, which wasn't touching it explicitly. 
because it makes more people uncomfortable. Yeah. And it made me more uncomfortable. And there's something about... I can remember when I started out, and I'm just doing a monologue at you now, you might just be like, what to do with what I just said. But I can remember when I first started out and I knew I was going to make as wide and as deep as the sea, which is like the name for the body of work. So dark and lovely, race card, soul, we're going as wide and as deep as the sea. And I was kind of like, oh, we should make something else which isn't so explicitly about race at the same time, just so people know that I can still do that. Yeah. Just so people don't kind of tune out from me. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm making work about race. Um, and again, it's that thing, like that hairdryer moment, where mm. kind of me at 26 is kind of like, I'm really sad that Selena at 22 felt that way. Yeah. I'm really sad that I was so afraid to make what I urgently needed to make. Yeah. But I felt like I had to have something that I wasn't that interested in, mm-hmm. running alongside it, mm. or else no one would care. Um, and I... Yeah, I... I well, and, and, that you have to pre- and that you have to prove <clears throat> yourself doubly. I remember when I wrote that piece... Um, last year for on the guardian online and i yeah. do you remember they published it a day early and i came to yeah. you as as one of a few people that i just said look can you just look out for any negativity that comes on these um comments mm-hmm. because lynn had sort of suggested that there might be and that a good way yeah. to deal with it was just to nip it in the bud um and there were little bits that came through and you and you so fantastically closed down this um this thread of like oh well you know of course you can play hamlet which wasn't really the gist of the article in any case (laughs) um but uh the thing about bethany black um and uh, and that you know oh well you know she's made it so if you're good enough you can make it and i think you made this point about you know why do we expect people from marginalized communities to be fantastic like they have to be they have to be virtuosic before they're allowed to just be to 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 do the the same thing that we would allow someone from a more mainstream background to just do no one else has to prove themselves but we feel that you know we've got to prove ourselves by doing all the things so that Mm. people will take seriously the thing that looks at at it i mean that thing you said about being with with two or three people um and that feeling of um Oh, you said about you know shame, and I think that kind of internalized cop in the head and that like shame of talking about some of these things or about like by um, by acknowledging things that are sh- that are shameful and then you know feeling bad for still feeling sh- I feel so much shame still about things that I'm supposed to be over now because I'm um, because I live as an out trans woman and I don't hide that and I'm not. I'm not shameful, but then I still do feel, you know, yeah, and I'm not, and, yeah. and, and I also am. I mean, it's hard when I see another trans woman who I don't know, when I see somebody that I read as trans who I don't yeah. know, there's also this like thing of you can't just always go up to someone and be like, oh, hi, because yeah. they might not want to know yeah. that they are being read as trans. And yeah. that feels shit to be part of, to be in this society that 
And I think it's something that actually, hopefully, is changing. A lot of people are owning the experience of being trans more. Mm. Um, and not trying to feel that you have to live live stealth, stealthily or to, like, the Little Miss Jocelyn character. I mean, it's totally <laughs> yeah. um, comparable. But, you know, that it might be offensive to somebody for me to identify them as also trans. Yeah. Because of, you know, living within these things. That's That's really... That's really sad because sometimes you do just want to say, "Oh my God, you're like you look awesome," <laughs> or mm. you know, just to say hello. Yeah. Um, can we draw this together because you yeah. have to go and do a show, and I have to go and pick up my little boy. <laughs> um, and a, I'm a little bit a, a, I already want to see him, and b, I'm a little yeah. bit frightened of his childminder. I don't want to be late. Um, <laughs> But is there anything else that you want to add? I mean, we, this is not like a conversation that is even remotely possible to round up, right? And I feel like <laughs> between us, this is the beginning of a conversation that I've wanted to sit and talk to you for since we first met, really, up, up at, over at Buzzcut, um, a relatively short amount of time ago. But, um, you know, I I want to keep talking <laughs> about yeah. these things I feel like we've just named a few things and haven't actually got into them no. <laughs> at all no it needs longer I'm probably doing the same really yeah um no other than that I just was really I really did love rituals for change I was just really like felt really fiery about it like I just remember sort of <laughs> Remember when I was leaving, I like left really early, like charged out the door. So I just was really like, everybody in this room ain't shit. That's how I felt <laughs> at the end of it. Like no one in here was good enough for this. Um, so I just really loved it, and I, yeah, I just kind of wanted to say that because I think like. You see a lot of good work in an environment like that, so it's hard to really communicate when mm. something is very, is very actually moving and very sort of, yeah, doing what for me art needs to do. So that, and also that self care is something I want to talk about and think about lots. Because I worry about it lots. I think it's really important. But I also worry that as it increasingly becomes a buzzword, it can potentially become something else that you can fail at. Yeah. That you're not self-caring for yourself well enough. Yeah. Um, and I worry about it potentially becoming another stick to beat marginalised people and activists with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would love to chat with you about that at some point, really yeah. unpick it and really go into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, let's do this again. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it again. And thank you for that. And uh, yeah, um, similarly, I love your work. And I didn't get to see Salt, which is, which I kind of feel really sad about. But also, I feel like it potentially is helpful to you to not see it now <laughs> and yeah. to see it when it's a, when when it's that later iteration of it like I want yeah. to as a friend see it now and 
be that person in that space offering support <laughs> but okay. also like I feel the time the time will come but I did get my fix of you this week because I was lucky <laughs> enough to see Dark and Lovely but yeah just again like so strange that those kind of um within the context of a showcase when there are people who are there for you know for business or for looking at it in a different way and like my experience of rituals and it was like it actually it was lovely and people I got to eventually get some really nice feedback but in the moment like felt like god you guys can barely clap for long enough for me to get off the stage gee you know come on like help don't do me any favors right like and it was so odd that because also I'm quite used to with that piece getting a, a huge round of applause because people feel they want to say it's okay we're with you we support you and stuff to the point where actually at times that's problematic and you're like yeah yeah all right I'm okay I know you know just because you feel guilty because I've talked about some things that maybe you do don't you know so it's a funny kind of thing between like what's the perfect amount of applause but yeah yeah, thank you um and thank you for being there um and for being here and so this was yeah gorgeous and I love that we had this conversations and it's not like there's a rule in the podcast about I'm only going to speak to trans and gender non-conforming people but equally I'm trying to build a safe thing where that's like part of the parameters of this podcast is who is it for like that one two three thing you know this is the space that isn't for I don't mind if people who are not who don't identify as that listen but I'm not making this for them, which is why actually the, to do it in the context of, of Mayfest is, is slightly odd. But um, but you're the first, and I kind of mentioned it at the beginning, but I only mentioned it really because you're the first person who doesn't identify as trans or gender non-conforming that I've spoken to. But I feel that that's totally cool. And that is something that I do want to do, like with, you know, with the right balance, but it's definitely something that I don't want to be like, well, I can never talk to someone who's not because there's too many interesting people out there who yeah so anyway thank you and I'm glad it was thank you, you. <laughs> well I'm gonna let you go take the rap of the child mind awesome hang on let me stop recording <laughs> And just like that, I did stop. Um, rather abrupt, perhaps, uh, without any chance for saying goodbye. But there we have it. Episode 8 of None of Us Is Yet a Robot. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation. Normal service will resume next time. Um, we've had a series of, sort of special editions but I'm going back to the format of just an open-ended chat and we'll pick up with the topic that was set by Rosanna Cade, um, which was children. But this was really good. I'm very happy with um, with this conversation. And as I mentioned at the end there, Selena's the first cisgender guest I've had um, on the podcast, which is always something that I sort of felt might be appropriate. Um, might not be appropriate, but I think um, I think it, I'm I'm really happy that we were able to talk. I think um, yeah, I'm happy. I hope you are. <laughs> I did a bit of research, and the cop in the head 
uh, phrase that I insist on quoting every single episode uh, appears to have been coined by Augusto, Augusto Boal, which means that I've carried that in my head since um, I was at university quite a long time ago. So it obviously did have a profound effect, and I think it's a really good phrase. Uh, I sort of half think somebody else has said it more recently as well. But there you go. Let's let's give it to Augusto for the time being. Um, thank you so much for listening. Please do spread the word, and please do tune in again um if you were joining us from mayfest radio and you've made it this far then check out the other episodes and perhaps join us again next time or so but uh many thanks to selena many thanks to uh mayfest and take care of yourselves take care of each other and i'll see you next time